I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. You are listening to a London Review of Books podcast. This lecture, as you know, is called Against Self-Criticism. The epigraph is from the painter Benjamin Robert Hayden's diary, and it is... A man's liberty is gone the moment he becomes official. Lacan famously remarked that there must be something ironic about Christ's injunction to love thy neighbour as thyself, because actually people hate themselves. Indeed, it seemed rather as if, given the way people treat each other, they'd always love their neighbours in the way they love themselves, that is, with a good deal of cruelty and disregard. After all, Lacan writes, the people who followed Christ were not so brilliant. Lacan at this moment in his lecture is implicitly comparing Freud with Christ, many of whose followers, in Lacan's view, had betrayed Freud's vision. And that meant simply that they'd read him in the wrong way. They had, in Lacan's view, been a failure of interpretation, a failure of literary criticism, criticism being notably a phrase and a practice that has had rather more staying power than the idea of literary appreciation or celebration. Literary appreciation, with its Paterian associations, has a whiff of the effete, whereas criticism always implies something more determinedly intelligent and robust. Indeed, in broaching the possibility of being in some way against self-criticism, we have to imagine a world in which celebration is less suspect than criticism, and in which the alternatives of celebration and criticism are a determined narrowing of the repertoire. And we have to begin to imagine styles of relating in which praise and blame are not the only currency, but in which praise is preferred, in which we praise whatever we can. Lacan's comparison is itself a suggestive interpretation of at least one element in Christianity. Lacan could be understood to be saying here that from a Freudian point of view, Christ's story about love was a cover story, a repression of and a self-cure for ambivalence. In Freud's vision of things, we are above all ambivalent animals. Wherever we hate, we love. Wherever we love, we hate. If someone can satisfy us, they can frustrate us. And if someone can frustrate us, we always believe they can satisfy us. We criticize when we are frustrated, or when we're trying to describe our frustration, however obliquely, and praise wherever we're more satisfied or want to be. And ambivalence does not, in the Freudian story, mean mixed feelings. It means opposing feelings. Ambivalence has to be distinguished from having mixed feelings about someone, Charles Rycroft writes in his appropriately entitled A Critical Dictionary of Psychoanalysis, as though an uncritical dictionary would be somehow simple-minded. Quote, It refers to an underlying emotional attitude in which the contradictory attitudes derive from a common source and are interdependent, whereas mixed feelings may be based on a realistic assessment of the imperfect nature of the object, end of quote. Love and hate are the common source in this view, the elemental feelings with which we apprehend the world, and they are interdependent in the sense that you can't have one without the other, and that they mutually inform each other. The way we hate people depends upon the way we love them, and vice versa in this story. 
And given these contradictory feelings are our common source, they enter, enter into everything we do. They are the medium in which we do everything. We are ambivalent in Freud's view about anything and everything that matters to us. Indeed, ambivalence is the way we recognize that someone or something has become significant to us. This means that we are ambivalent about ambivalence, about love and hate and sex and pleasure and each other and so on. Wherever there is an object of desire in this account, there is ambivalence. But Freud's insistence about our ambivalence, about people as fundamentally ambivalent animals, is also his way of saying that we're never quite as obedient as we seem to be. That where there is devotion, there's always protest. Where there's trust, there's suspicion. Where there is self-hatred, guilt, there is self-love. We may not be able to imagine a life in which we don't spend a large amount of our time criticizing ourselves and others, but we should keep in mind that self-love is always in play. Self-criticism can be our most unpleasant, our most sadomasochistic way of loving ourselves. We are never as good as we should be, it seems, and neither are other people. Indeed, a life without a so-called critical faculty could seem like an idiocy. The quite what kind of idiocy is not entirely clear. What are we, after all, but our powers of discrimination, our taste, the violence of our preferences? Our insufficiency is patent, though we do need to bear in mind that to feel not good enough is to have already consented to the standard we're being judged by. Clearly, self-criticism and the self as critical are essential to our sense, our picture of our so-called selves. It often happens, Swift wrote, that if a lie be believed for only an hour, it hath done its work and there is no further occasion for it. The lie that self-criticism can so easily be, the relentless misnaming of the self, seems to require endless reiteration. And by the same token, nothing makes us more critical, more confounded, more suspicious or appalled or even mildly amused than the suggestion that we should drop all this relentless criticism, that we should be less impressed by it and start really loving ourselves. Or at least that self-criticism should cease to have the hold over us that it does. One reason, for example, that we might be less impressed, less in awe of the part of ourselves that criticise ourselves is that there is one very striking fact about it that I will come back to. The self-critical part of ourselves that Freud calls a superego is remarkably narrow-minded. It has an unusually impoverished vocabulary. And it is, like all propagandists, relentlessly repetitive. It doesn't, as they say, do us justice. It is cruelly intimidating... Lacan writes of the obscene superego, and it never brings us any news about ourselves. There are only ever two or three things we're endlessly accusing ourselves of, and they are all too familiar. A stuck record, as we say, but in both senses. The superego is reiterative. It is the stuck record of the past. Something there badly not wrong, Beckett's line from Worstwood Ho, is exactly what it must not say. Something there badly not wrong. It is, in short, strikingly unimaginative, both about morality and about ourselves, the self, selves it insists on diminishing. Were we to meet this figure socially, as it were, this accusatory character, this internal critic, this unrelenting fault finder, we would think there was something wrong with him. He would just be boring and cruel. We might think that something terrible had happened to him, that he was living in the aftermath, in the fallout of some catastrophe. And we would be right. Hamlet, we should remember, wanted to catch the conscience of the king and thought the play was where it could be caught. The play's the thing wherein I'll catch the conscience of the king. 
For catch the OED has to seize or take hold of, to ensnare, to deceive, to surprise, to take, to intercept, to seize by the senses or intellect, to apprehend. It also had in the 16th century our modern connotation of to catch out, but the term derives originally from hunting and fishing. Clearly, it would be a very revealing, perhaps overexposing thing to be able to do, to be able to catch the conscience of a or the king. Conscience did not then have simply or solely our modern sense of some kind of internal moral regulation, but also meant, quote, inward knowledge and consciousness. The dictionary has for 1611, inmost thought, mind, heart. To catch the conscience of a king would be to radically expose his most private preoccupations. And in the words of the dictionary, it would be to expose, quote, the faculty or principle which pronounces upon the moral quality of one's actions or motives. These definitions are interesting, not least because they raise the question of just how private or inmost or intimate conscience is supposed to be. And questions about what we should want to know about a king or indeed about any authoritative voice. We might wonder, for example, whether conscience itself has a conscience and so on. Morality, one might think, not to mention the religion of state that the king represented, would have to be public. And yet these definitions, contemporary with Hamlet, intimate that one's morality might also be the most private thing about oneself. Private from the authorities, given that the language of morality was the language of religion, and Hamlet was written at a time of considerable religious divisions. But also, perhaps, private in the sense of hidden from the self, One might carry a morality, live as if a certain morality was true, without quite knowing what it was. It would be like a morality that had no text to refer to, nor even knew, perhaps, that reference was required, an unconscious morality. And at its most extreme, the faculty or principle which pronounces upon the moral qualities of one's actions or motives may have no discernible or remotely popular cultural moorings. So in speaking one's mind, one might be speaking all sorts of other minds, some recognisable, some not. Hamlet, Brian Cummings wrote in his book Mortal Thoughts, quote, far from speaking his mind, confronts us with a fragmentary repository of alternative selves and searches within for the limits of being. Once there is the idea of alternative selves, there will be questions about the limits of being, about what or who we can take ourselves to be. If conscience can be caught like a fish, like a criminal, it might be part of that fragmentary repository of alternative selves that are like a troop of actors. If the play is the thing, then we can say that it was useful to have a cultural form in which the conscience of a king, or indeed of anyone, conscience itself being like a king, could be caught, exposed, seen to be like a character, and therefore thought about and discussed. What does the conscience of the king, or of anyone, actually look like? Who or what does it resemble? What does it wear? Being able to reflect on one's conscience, being able to look at the voice of conscience from varying points of view, is itself a radical act, one that psychoanalysis would turn into a formal treatment. After all, if the voice of conscience is not to be obeyed, what is to be done with it? Freud, it's worth remembering, uses Hamlet in the interpretation of dreams as, among other things, a way of understanding the obscene severities of conscience. In what seems in retrospect a rather simple picture of a person, Freud proposed that we were driven by what were quickly acculturated biological instincts, tempered by controls and prohibitions internalised from the culture through the parents. 
Conscience that Freud would later incorporate into his notion of the superego was there to protect and prohibit the individual from desires that endangered him or were presumed to. In Freud's view, we have conscience that we may not perish of the truth, the truth of our desire. Hamlet was unusually illuminating for Freud because it showed him how conscience worked and how psychoanalytic interpretation worked and how psychoanalysis could itself become part of the voice of conscience. That conscience was voracious in its recruitment. The loathing which should drive Hamlet on to revenge, Freud writes, is replaced in him by self-reproaches, by scruples of conscience which remind him that he himself is literally no better than the sinner whom he is to punish, end of quote. Hamlet, in Freud's view, turns the murderous aggression he feels towards Claudius against himself. Conscience is then the consequence of uncompleted revenge. Originally there were other people we wanted to murder, but this was too dangerous, so we murder ourselves through self-reproach. And we murder ourselves to punish ourselves for having such murderous thoughts. And we have to be clear about this. Freud is using Hamlet to say that conscience is a form of character assassination the character assassination of everyday life. We are continually, if unconsciously, mutilating and deforming our own character. Indeed, so unrelenting is this internal violence in Freud's view that we have no idea what we are like without it. We know virtually nothing about ourselves because we judge ourselves before we have a chance to see ourselves. Or to put it differently, we can only judge what we recognise ourselves as able to judge. What can't be judged can't be seen. Indeed, Freud's way of formulating this shows us how conscience obscures self-knowledge, and he intimates that this may be its primary function, that the judged self can only be judged but not known, that guilt hides the self in the guise of exposing it. And this then allows us to think that it is complicitous not to stand up to, not to contest this internal tyranny by what is only one part, a small but loud part of the self. So frightened are we by the superego that we identify with it, we speak on its behalf to avoid antagonising it. So complicity is delegated bullying. Tragedy is the genre that shows us what is at stake in contesting and abiding by conscience and its related terms. So in this play, or rather in one way of seeing this play, Hamlet is arguing with his own and other people's consciences with unique eloquence and subtlety. Hamlet, Freud intimates, has such complex self-rumination and such relentless self-accusation, the two being virtually synonymous, because of the violence he's been unable to enact. The drama is internalised. Hamlet's battling with his conscience, not the voice of conscience alone, but the voices called up in Hamlet to contest it, is the drama of the play. So Hamlet, we should notice, is a genius of self-reproach because of the dialogues with his conscience he can engage in. In this play, and in this sense, literature might be the thing to catch the conscience. The dialogues around and about self-criticism seem like one of the most imaginative things we can do. Hamlet captures our imagination because of of what has captured his imagination and the ways in which it has captured this imagination. It is the links between self-criticism and what Brian Cummings called the limits of being that Shakespeare dramatises in Hamlet. Indeed, it's only because our consciences are as they are are the kind of artefact we have made for ourselves, that there is such a thing as tragedy at all. As though tragedy has been the cultural form in which we've been trying to reveal something, not about the real horror of life, but about the horror of life lived under the aegis of a certain kind of conscience. 
Self-criticism is nothing if it is not the defining and usually the over-defining of the limits of being. But ironically, if that's the right word, the limits of being are announced and enforced before so-called being has had much of a chance to speak for itself. The Freudian superego is the limit that forbids you to discover your own limits. It is preemptive in its restrictiveness. Hamlet's conversation with himself and others about conscience allows him to speak in ways no one had quite spoken before. It is then of some interest, I think, that Freud chooses Hamlet to start really thinking about conscience, and that thinking about conscience requires thinking about tragedy. There is, it dawns on Freud, something we may need to be freed from. After interpreting Hamlet's apparent procrastinations in the play with the newfound authority of the newfound psychoanalyst, Freud then needs to add something by way of qualification that is at once itself a loophole and a limit. But just as all neurotic symptoms, Freud writes, and for that matter dreams, are capable of being overinterpreted and indeed need to be if they are to be fully understood, so all genuinely creative writings are the product of more than a single impulse in the poet's mind and are open to more than a single interpretation, end of quote. It is as though Freud's guilt about his own aggression in asserting his interpretation of what he calls the deepest layers in Hamlet, his claim to sovereignty over the text and the character of Hamlet, leads him to open up the play, having closed it down. The Freudian superego always has a sovereign interpretation of the person's behaviour. We consent to the superior's interpretation. We believe our self-reproaches are true. We are over-impressed without noticing that that is what we are being. You can only understand anything that matters, Freud says, dreams, neurotic symptoms, people, literature, by over-interpreting it, by seeing it from different aspects as the product of multiple impulses. Over-interpretation here means not settling for one interpretation, however apparently compelling it is. Indeed, the implication is, and here is Freud's ongoing suspicion, i.e. ambivalence about psychoanalysis, the implication is that the more persuasive, the more compelling, the more authoritative the interpretation is, the less credible it is or should be. It might be the violent attempt to presume to set a limit where no limit can be set. If one interpretation explained Hamlet, we wouldn't need Hamlet anymore. Hamlet as a play would have been murdered. So authority wants to replace the world with itself, Authority is there to tell us what we should enjoy. So over-interpretation, then, means not being stopped in your tracks by what you are most persuaded by. It means assuming that to believe one interpretation is to radically misunderstand the object one is interpreting and interpretation itself. Tragic heroes always under-interpret, always emperors of one idea. Indeed, the tragic hero in the guise of collaboration is always the enemy of what Freud calls and calls for over-interpretation. Hamlet, we could say, is a great over-interpreter of his experience. And it is this, the sheer range and complexity of his thoughts and interest in his thought from different aspects, that makes him such an unusual so-called tragic hero. And that gives Hamlet, I think, its unique status. Emerson was distinguished, Santayana wrote, not only by what he knew, but by the number of ways he had of knowing it. Freud was beginning to fear at this moment in interpreting dreams when he was writing about Hamlet, and rightly as it turned out, that psychoanalysis could be undistinguished if it had only one way of knowing what it thought it knew. It was dawning on Freud at this moment in interpreting dreams, prompted by his reading of Hamlet, that psychoanalysis at its worst could be a method of underinterpretation, 
And to take that seriously was to take the limits of psychoanalysis seriously, and indeed the limits of any description of human nature that organises itself around one essential metaphor. Comparing Hamlet with the psychonic readings of Hamlet as an Oedipal crisis would soon more than confirm Freud's misgivings about the uses and misuses of psychoanalysis. Indeed, it confirms Deleuze and Guattari's point in Anti-Oedipus that the function of the Oedipus myth in psychoanalysis is paradoxically often to restore law and order, to contain within a culturally prestigious classical myth the unpredictable prodigal desires that Freud had unleashed. So there is Cummings' distinction between the notion of Hamlet speaking his mind as opposed to speaking a fragmentary repository of alternative selves, and there is Freud's authoritative psychoanalytic interpretation of Hamlet, highly qualified by his subsequent promotion of overinterpretation, and Shakespeare's and Hamlet's troupe of actors who will perform a play that will be the thing to catch the conscience of a king. And there is, of course, Hamlet's question in the famous soliloquy in which Hamlet tells us something about suicide and something about death and something about all the unknown and unknowable future experiences that death also represents. And he does this by telling us something about conscience, or rather, two things about conscience. The first quarter of, ha quarter of Hamlet has, quote, Thus conscience does make cowards of us all, while the second quarter has... Thus, conscience does make cowards. If conscience makes cowards of us all, then we're all in the same boat. That is just the way it is. If conscience makes cowards, we can more easily wonder what else it might be able to make. Either way, and they are clearly different, conscience makes something of us. It is a maker, if not of selves, then of something about ourselves. It is an internal artist of a kind. Freud will say that the superego, that, as we shall see, is both similar to and different from conscience, is something we make, that then, in turn, makes us into something, into certain kinds of people. Just to say, Frankenstein's monster makes Frankenstein into something that he wasn't before he made the monster. The superego, I want to say, after Freud, casts us as certain kinds of character. It is, it, as it were, tells us who we really are. It is an essentialist. It claims to know us in a way that no one else, including ourselves, can ever do. And like a mad god, it is omniscient. It behaves as if it can predict the future by claiming to know the consequences of our actions. When we know, in a more imaginative part of ourselves, that most actions are morally equivocal and change over time in our estimation. And apparently, no apparently self-destructive act is ever only self-destructive. No good is purely and simply that. It is the sovereign interpreter, and it forbids what Freud calls usefully over-interpretation. The phrase making us wonder what the standard of proper or sufficient interpretation might be if this psychoanalytic reading is over-interpretation, and over-interpretation is required. What is the norm, and what kind of norm is it if this excess is necessary? The superego tells us what we take to be the truth about ourselves. Self-criticism, that is to say, is an unforbidden pleasure. We seem to relish the way it makes us suffer. It gives, and has given, unforbidden pleasure a bad name. Unforbidden pleasures are always the pleasures we don't particularly want or need to think about. We just implicitly take it for granted that each day will bring its necessary quotient of self-disappointment. That every day we will fail to be as good as we should be. But without our being given the resources, the language, to wonder who or what is setting the pace. And where these rather punishing standards come from. How can we find out what we think of all this when conscience never lets go? 
The new Arden Hamlet glosses conscience, quote, Some commentators argue that conscience means introspection here, rather than a sense of morality. Certainly the context indicates that Hamlet means fear of punishment after death, rather than innate sense of good and bad, end of quote. The ambiguities I've said between conscience as in a mentation and as opposed to conscience as in a morality is integral to the matter at hand. The question is whether there is more to our inner worlds than our sense, innate or otherwise, of good and bad, or indeed whether there are multiple or competing or largely unconscious moralities that we live by unwittingly. Hamlet makes us wonder, if conscience makes us cowards, what is conscience like? Cowardice, after all, may be, as the dictionary puts it, the, quote, display of ignoble ignoble fear in the face of pain, danger, or difficulty. A coward being, quote, a pusillanimous person. That is, someone, quote, wanting firmness of mind, mean-spirited. Cowardice is deemed to be unimpressive, inappropriate, shameful fear. We are cowardly when we're not at our best, or as we should be when frightened. There are, in other words, acceptable and unacceptable versions of fearfulness. And this means we should be fearful in certain ways and fearful of certain objects. Fear, like everything else, is subject to cultural norms. So if conscience makes cowards, it demeans us. It's the part of ourselves that humiliates us, that makes us, in that horrifying phrase, ashamed of ourselves. But what if it makes the very selves that it encourages us to be ashamed of? What if it makes us into humiliatable objects by always underinterpreting, by being so starkly narrow-minded? Indeed, as Hamlet famously tells us, sometimes it torments us by stopping us killing ourselves when our lives are actually unbearable. It can, as Hamlet can quite, can't quite say, be a kind of torturer, even making us go on living when we know in a more imaginative part of ourselves that our lives have become intolerable. Conscience, that is to say, can seduce us into betraying ourselves. Indeed, in Freud's figure of the superego, as we shall see, it's the part of our mind that makes us lose our minds. The moralist that prevents us from evolving a personal, a more complex and subtle morality. Prevents us from finding, by experiment, say, what may be the limits of our being. So when Richard III says in the final act of the play, O coward conscience, how dost thou afflict me? a radical alternative is being proposed. That conscience makes cowards of us all because it is itself cowardly. We believe in, we identify with this starkly condemnatory, this punitively forbidding part of ourselves. And yet this supposedly authoritative part of ourselves is itself a coward. We are afflicted with its cowardice. Conscience is intimidating because it is intimidated. What we might wonder, and this was to be Freud's question, is our conscience intimidated by, if it is not intimidated by God? And how is it, and why is it, that morality as we've conceived of it is born of intimidation? What other kind of morality might there be? If it is, as Richard says, coward conscience, then we might have been fearing the wrong objects in the wrong way. If we've been living by a certain kind of forbidding morality, what would an unforbidding morality look like? We have to imagine not that we are cowardly, but that we've been living by the morality of a coward. So this too we need to consider, that the ferocity of our conscience might be a form of cowardice. Conscience clearly protests too much. There are moralities inspired by fear, but what would a morality be or be like that was inspired by desire? 
It would, as Hamlet's great soliloquy perhaps suggests, be a morality, a conscience that had a different relation to the unknown. The coward, after all, always thinks he knows what he fears and knows that he doesn't have the wherewithal to deal with it. The coward, like Freud's superego, is in this sense too knowing. A coward is a person, or rather the cowardly part of ourselves, is like a person who must not have a new experience. A character in one of Norman Mailer's novels says, you learn everything fighting your fear. Conscience says, this is a fear you can't fight. Hamlet is talking about suicide, but talking about suicide is a way of talking about experiences one has never really had before. Quote, Who would fardels bear to grunt and sweat under a weary life, but that the dread of something after death, the undiscovered country from whose born no traveller returns, puzzles the will and makes us rather bear those ills we have than fly to others that we know not of? Thus conscience does make cowards, and thus the native hue of resolution is sicklied o'er with a pale cast of thought, and enterprises of great pitch and moment, with this regard their currents turn awry and lose the name of action. The undiscovered country from whose born no traveller returns is also the unknown and unknowable future. Born reminding us that our relation to the future is also a continual being born and something we have to find ways of bearing. One of the ways we bear the unknownness of the future is to treat it as though it was in fact the past and as though the past was something we did know about. Freud would formalise this idea in his concept of transference. We invent new people supposedly on the, on the basis of past familial relationships, as if we knew those people and could use that knowledge as a reliable guide. This fear of death and of the unknowable future, the fear that it will be one way or another only punishing, as our conscience instructs us, makes us cowards. There is, we should note, in this so-called melancholia, no expectation that the unknown will either be better than expected or wholly other than the way it can be imagined. The native hue of resolution, something perhaps more innate, the dictionary has natural to a person, is then sickly o'er with a pale cast of thought. As if to say, thinking like this... Thinking as conscience makes us think is like an illness. If there is a pale cast of thought, there must be or could be a bright or brilliant or full-blooded cast of thought. Cast of thought reminding us of the cast of a play, and that thoughts might be cast like actors are cast. Thoughts, as it were, in role, thoughts as playing parts, thoughts as scripted. Conscience as scripted can never be out of character. And we may never be quite able to work out who wrote the script. It's likely in the context and in the moment of the play that Hamlet, as the editors Anne Thompson and Neil Taylor say, is talking about fear of punishment after death, the life after death as conceived by the contested Christianities that Shakespeare inhabited. But Hamlet is also talking about, in the context of this play, a play acutely self-conscious about its own theatricality, how conscience feeds us our lines, and whether indeed conscience feeds us our best lines, especially given its pale cast of thought. Talking about conscience, though, and of course the prospect of death, gives Hamlet some of his best lines. If conscience doesn't always feed us our best lines, Hamlet at least suggests talking and writing about conscience might. Conscience, in its all-too-impoverished vocabulary and its all-too-serious and suffocating drama, needs to be over-interpreted. Under-interpreted, it can only be taken on its own terms. It can only be propaganda. The superego only speaks propaganda about the self, which is why it is so boring and so easy to listen to. 
Psychoanalysis was to be about whether the superego, not conscience but akin to it, could be changed by redescription. Something as unrelenting as our internal soliloquies of self-reproach, Freud realised, necessitated unusually imaginative redescriptions. Without such redescriptions, and Hamlet, of course, is one, what Brian Cummings calls the fragmentary repository of alternative selves will be silenced. The slings and arrows of outrageous fortune may be as nothing compared with the murderous mufflings and insinuations and distortions of the superego. Because it is the project of the superego, as conceived of by Freud, to render the individual utterly solipsistic and incapable of exchange. So self-mortified, so loathsome, so inadequate, so isolated, so self-obsessed, so boring and bored, so guilty, that no one could possibly love or desire them. The solitary modern individual and his Freudian superego, a master and a slave in a world of their own. Who do I fear, Richard Richard III asked at the end of his play? Myself, there's no one else by. Like all unforbidden pleasures, self-criticism, self-reproach is always available and accessible. What needs to be understood is, why is it so unforbidden and why is it a pleasure? And following on from this, how has it come about that we're so bewitched by our self-hatred, so impressed and credulous in the face of our self-criticism, as unimaginative as it usually is? Why is it, that is to say, akin to a judgment without a jury? A jury, after all, represents some kind of consensus as an alternative to autocracy. When Algernon Sidney wrote in his Discourse Concerning Government that, quote, the strength of every judgment consists in the verdict of these juries, which the judges do not give but pronounce or declare, he was making the figure of a judge a spokesperson for a diversity of voices, not a sovereign authority. I want to suggest that guilt, apparently legitimated self-hatred, can be then a refuge. An orgy of self-criticism is always preferable to the other more daunting, more pleasurable engagements or arguments. This doesn't mean that no one is ever culpable. It means the culpability will always be more complicated than it looks or than we want it to look. That self-criticism, when it isn't useful in the way any self-correcting approach can be, is self-hypnosis. It is judgment as spell or curse, not as conversation. It is an order, not a negotiation. It is dogma, not over-interpretation. Psychoanalysis, that is to say, sets itself the task of wanting to have a conversation with someone, call it the superego, who, because he knows what a conversation is, is definitely never going to have one. The superego is a figure for the supreme narcissist and is a supreme narcissist. Self-reproach is rarely an internal trial by jury. The Freudian superego is a boring and vicious soliloquist with an audience of one. Because the superego in Freud's view is a made voice, a made-up part, it has a history. Freud sets himself the task of tracing this history with a view to modifying it. And in order to do this, he has to create a genealogy that begins with the more traditional and non-secular idea of conscience. Separating out conscience from his new, apparently secular concept of the superego involves Freud in all the contradictions attendant on unravelling one's history. To put it as simply as possible, Freud's parents, Freud's forebears, most of the people living in fin de siècle Vienna, probably thought of themselves as having consciences. And whatever they felt about these consciences, they were more or less a more or less acknowledged legacy of a religious past. They were a cultural inheritance. Freud wanted to describe what was, in effect, the secular air of these religious and secularised religious consciences, the superego. 
We see how one part of the ego, Freud writes in Morning of Melancholia, sets itself over against the other, judges it critically, and as it were, takes it as its object. End of quote. The mind, so to speak, splits itself in two, and one part sets itself over the other to judge it. It takes it as its object. That is to say, the superego treats the ego as though it were an object, not a person. In other words, the superego, the inner judge, radically misrecognizes the ego. It treats it, for example, as though it can't answer back, as though it doesn't have a mind of its own. It's noticeable how merciless and unsympathetic we can be to ourselves in our self-criticism. It is intimated that the ego, ourselves as we know ourselves to be, is the slave of the superego. How have we become enslaved to this part of ourselves, or rather, how and why have we consented? What's in it for us, or indeed for someone else? And in what sense is the superego Freud's implied critique of the Judeo-Christian's religions and their God? Internally, there is a judge and a criminal, but no jury. Annabel Patterson writes in her book Early Modern Liberalism of Alton and Sidney, quote, that his agenda was to move the reader gradually to understand that the only guarantor against partisan jurisprudence was shared jurisprudence. End of quote. Freud's agenda in psychoanalysis, continuing in this liberal tradition, was the attempt to create, to experiment with the possibility of shared internal jurisprudence. Self-criticism might be less jaded and jading, more imaginative and less spiteful, more of a conversation. The enslaved and judged ego could have more than his judge to appeal to. The psychoanalyst would be the patient's ally in this project, suggesting juries offering multiple perspectives on underinterpreted actions, underinterpreted, that is, by the patient himself. This, of course, was not possible, at least in quite this way, in a monotheistic religion or in an absolutist state. To whom could the modern individual appeal in the privacy of his own mind? To which Freud would answer through the experiment of psychoanalysis, there's more to a person, more parts, more voices, more fragmentary alternative selves than the judge and the judged. There is, in effect, a repressed repertoire. Where judgment is, their conversation should be. And we can add, where there is absolute authority, there is the sabotaging of a conversation. Where there is dogma, there is an uncompleted experiment. When there is self-condemnation, it is always more complicated than that. Mercilessness is cowardice. The superego, La Planche and Pontelis write in their language of psychoanalysis, is, quote, one of the agencies of the personality as described by Freud. The superego's role in relation to the ego may be compared to that of a judge or a censor. Freud sees conscience, self-observation, and the formation of ideals as functions of the superego, end of quote. It's useful to call the superego an agency because it has agency. And the complementary alternatives, it is like a censor or a judge, speaks of the punitive, the forbidding, and the restrictive. So, paradoxically, being forbidden something, being forbidden to speak or to act or to think or to desire in certain ways, can be itself an unforbidden pleasure. Turning oneself into an object can also be an unforbidden pleasure, the object of censorship and judgment. But what is also perplexing and adds insult to injury is that Freud's superego, because it is more than conscience, because it includes this traditional form, is also, in a very limited sense, also benign. It is the provider and the guardian of what Freud calls our ego ideals. The ego ideal, Laplanche and Pontelis write, quote, constitutes a model to which the subject attempts to conform. 
And once again, Freud prefers the multiple view. Each individual, he writes, is a component part of numerous groups. He's bound by ties of identification in many directions, and he's built up his ego ideal on the most various models. End of quote. The ego ideal is both composite, made up from many cultural models and influences, and divisive. It keeps alternative models at bay, but it can also sometimes be inclusive. In this ambiguity, which Freud can never quite resolve, he's wondering just how constricted the modern individual really is or has to be. In making the ego ideal at its best, the ego has overinterpreted his culture, beginning with the family. She's taken whatever she can use from her culture to make up her own ideals for herself. Whereas the superego, a censor or judge, Freud believes, is simply an internalized version of the prohibiting father, a kind of brainwasher. The father who says to the eatable child, do as I say, not as I do. But the superego, by definition, despite Freud's qualifications, underinterprets the individual's experience. In the Freudian story, the father is never imaginative enough about the son, and so vice versa. It is, in this sense, moralistic rather than moral. Like all, like a malign parent, it harms in the guise of protecting, it exploits in the guise of providing good guidance. In the name of health and safety, it creates a life of terror and self-estrangement. There is a difference that makes all the difference between not doing something out of fear of punishment and not doing something because one believes it is wrong. Guilt, that is to say, is not necessarily a good clue to what one values. It's only a good clue about what or who one fears. Not doing something because one will feel guilty if one does it is not necessarily a good reason not to do it. Morality born of intimidation is immoral. Psychoanalysis was Freud's attempt to say something new about the police. We can see the ways in which Freud is getting the superego to do too much work for him. It's a censor, a judge, a dominating and frustrating father, and it carries a blueprint of the kind of person the child should be, and therefore should want to be. And this reveals something of the difficulty of what Freud is trying to come to terms with. The difficulty of going on with a cultural conversation about how we describe so-called inner authority or individual morality. But in each of these multiple functions, the ego seems paltry, merely the slave, the doll, the ventriloquist dummy, the object of the superego's prescriptions, the superego's thing. And the id, the biological drives that drive the individual, are also supposed to be, as far as is possible, the victims, the objects of the superego's censorship and judgment. The sheer scale of the forbidden and the forbidding in this system is obscene. And yet in this system, in this vision of things, all this punitive forbidding becomes paradoxically one of our primary unforbidden pleasures. We are, by definition, forbidden to find all this forbidding forbidden. Indeed, we find ways of getting a great deal of pleasure from our restrictedness. How, in Freud's view, has our virulent, predatory self-criticism become one of our greatest pleasures? How has it come about that we so much enjoy the picture of ourselves as objects, and as objects of judgment and censorship? What is this appetite for confinement, for diminishment, for unrelenting, unforgiving self-criticism and criticism of others? And Freud's answer is beguilingly simple. We fear loss of love. Fear of loss of love means forbidding certain forms of love. Incestuous love or interracial love or same-sex love or so-called perverse sexuality or loving what the parents don't love. We need, in the first instance, the protection and cooperation of our parents in order to survive. So a deal is struck, or in a different language, there is a social contract. 
The child says, so to speak, to the parents, I will be what you need me to be as far as is possible in exchange for your love and protection. Not unlike Hobbes' story about sovereignty, the protection required for survival is paramount. Everything must be sacrificed except one's life for this. Safety is preferred to desire. Desire is sacrificed for security. Idiosyncrasy is waylaid. But this supposed safety, at least in Freud's version, comes at considerable cost. At the cost, in effect, of being turned into by being treated as an object. It depends upon our being made to feel that we are the kind of creatures that need an excessive amount of critical and condemnatory scrutiny. We must be cram-packed with forbidden desires if so much censorship and judgment is required. We are encouraged to believe, by all this censorship and judgment, that forbidden transgressive pleasures are what we really crave, that really, essentially, deep down, we are criminals. We need to be protected primarily from ourselves, from our wayward desires. What this regime doesn't allow us to think clearly is that we are cram-packed with unforbidden desires, or that our moral ideals could be anything other than forbidding. We cannot easily imagine, for example, quote, the moral ideal being presented as attractive rather than imperative, as the 19th century philosopher Henry Sidgwick put it. Just as the overprotected child believes that the world must be very dangerous and he must be very weak if he requires so much protection, and the parents must be very strong if they're able to protect him from all this. Similarly, we've been terrorised by all this censorship and judgement into believing that we are essentially radically antisocial and indeed dangerous to ourselves and others. We must be the only animal that lives as though this grandiose absurdity were true. Thank you. Anybody would like to ask a question, do. I was very interested that you were suggesting this possibility of a different sort of morality based on desire, and I would like to know what, what you imagine that could be. How might we have this you know, desire that's not based on, the, I mean, rather morality that's not based on the forbidden, but on, on desire or celebration or whatever? I, mean, I too would like to know what that would have been. <laughs> um, but I can imagine um, uh, a more or less intimidated life. See, it seems to me, in a way, the problem is caught within itself. Because it may be the reason that we can't easily answer a question like that is because we haven't got the wherewithal to do it. Because whatever those parts of ourselves are, they're undeveloped, so to speak, or thwarted, or simply quelled by such severe internal judgment. So that's why it seems to me psychoanalysis, not only psychoanalysis, but psychoanalysis is an interesting experiment in this. Which is, if you can in any way modify internal intimidation... What do you then think and feel and want? So that in, I'm sure you know this, but in psychoanalytic free association, what free association is, is persuading us of is that we don't know the value of what we think and feel before we say it. In other words, it's in the saying of it we might discover that. Whereas, of course, the internal judgment, the superego in its omniscience, has already decided in this story what it is permissible for us to say and think and feel. So I think the, the, the so-called method of free association is an attempt to loosen this up, to find out what you might say insofar as you're able to suspend these judgments. And I think what it does is it puts a great onus on the listener. It means the joke's only as good as its listener, so that you're dependent upon the person you're talking to not colluding with the internal authorities. 
So if you say something that it feels inadmissible and the other person calls the police, you're in trouble. And psychoanalysis is an attempt not to call the police. And, 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 not, and not with a view to being immoral or breaking the law in some sort of supposedly exciting way, but finding out what else might happen then if you don't call the police. And it's an experiment. It's not as though it promises a better life, but it might do. And I think, you know, the point, it's like what Rorty said in a way, I mean, which is that we didn't say this bit, but that something is a symptom because it doesn't get us the life we want. It's only a problem because it doesn't get us the life we want. So the question is, how free are we internally to think about what a life might be that we would want? Well, it's very hard to do that if you've got a bully staring you in the face. And, and I can't answer your question. <laughs> could, I, could I just pick up on that a little bit further and uh, take you back to the late 60s and Marcuse trying to build bridges between Marxism and, and uh, psychoanalysis? And surely that late 60s moment was a, an attempt to open up and to overthrow and to explore desire with all kinds of positive and negative consequences that we're now living with. Could you... Say something about that, please. Well, I, th- I mean, I think that's true. I don't, I'm not knowledgeable enough to be able to answer your question in detail. But certainly, I mean, one-dimensional man and Norman O'Brien's Life Against Death and, all, and Lang and all those things, I think were, was a moment culturally when um, there were some people who were beginning to think that if psychoanalysis wasn't a sort of sophisticated form of adaptation, what else could it be? And w- what else is it, would it be possible for us to feel if we weren't under the scrutiny or under the intimidation of um, authoritative voices telling us what we should enjoy. And so enjoyment became the real issue. And I think one of the good bits of Lacanian analysis is its emphasis on um, enabling somebody to find out where their real enjoyment might be. Now, of course, the problem with it, there's an obvious moral problem with this, which is their real enjoyment may be something that some of us don't really like. But nevertheless, it would seem to be, it might be useful, but this too is experimental, to have a a place in the culture where you can at least consider what your real enjoyment might be, as opposed to only having to dream it or close down, become depressed and narrow-minded. But I think since that moment, there's been very, very little that I know of, except in France. I mean, Deleuze and Guattari, and, and Deleuze himself, is clearly trying to show us... I mean, Deleuze says in an interview somewhere something like, um, the analyst is the one person you can't talk to because he always already knows what you're talking about. <laughs> Say, well, that's, there's a truth in that, obviously. So it's, you can only go as far as your analyst's conscience lets you. And that's why there's got to be a degree of mutuality in the process. Thank you for a fascinating lecture. Um, I, I just want to take up what the last person, or the last but one, asked. And I wonder whether today, given the kind of world that we live in with, with the pornosphere and, and um, a great children being the children of permissive parents and so on, whether there's a way, as some have said, that in fact the super, you're now... Um, puts out injunctions to us to enjoy and that sexual drives, desire are now things that we are forced to undertake by this rather um, um, authoritative superego. I mean, has there been a topsy-turvy since Freud's day? Well, I think that's what I mean when I talked about the superego as voracious in, it, in its recruitments. Because one of the most pernicious things about this whatever it is, is that it can, it, can, um, 
it can be recruited in very, very damaging ways. I mean, the tyrannical injunction, enjoy yourself, is obviously paralyzing. <laughs> the problem is, is the idea of injunction, because the superego gives injunctions. It tells you what you should want, love, enjoy, etc. Well, the attempt in this paper and in the history of psychoanalysis, or bits of psychoanalysis, is to say, if people don't give each other orders, what could they do? given that, in, certainly in, in child-rearing, there has to be a certain amount of ordering going on. But it seems to be very much about the way in which um, we are acculturate, acculturated to preempt each other's thoughts and feelings. And I think that what we should be suspicious of, or what we should at least be able to discuss, is anything that smacks of an injunction. We have to be able to have a conversation we can, in which we can decide whether that's a really good injunction or not. But I think anything that demands enjoyment is the problem. Going back to your <clears throat> talk, could you tie in or say something about Freud's idea of criminals from a sense of guilt? Does, where does that fit in? Does it fit in? I've never quite understood it. Well, one of the ways it fits in is, is it's a simple idea in a way, I think, which is that um, when one is guilty about something but unconscious of that, one seeks out a crime to locate what one feels guilty about and is a, is a poor criminal and intends to get caught so one can have the requisite punishment. So that um, what we're suffering from is our guilt, not our enacted criminality. So the risk of being made... I mean, it's a, this is one of the ironies of this system, is that the more guilty the superego makes us, the more violent we are because we require more and more and more punishment. And we require more and more and more and more intelligibility, because we have a feeling of unease and we don't know what it's about. Well, once I've committed my crime, at least I've localised it, I've organised it. You talked about Hamlet, and then um, Annabel Patterson talking about Sydney and liberal ideas. I wonder how far you saw there being some kind of historical moment at which things have changed or whether these are just texts that you, fi you find interesting to talk about things that you think hold more generally? It is the second, but I wish it could be the first because I just read things that interest me and if they seem relevant, pertinent, I put them in. But if I was more knowledgeable and more scholarly, I'd work this out differently. Um. I'm not a um, psychoanalyst, and so I'm speaking from a certain amount of ignorance here. But um, I was hearing a great deal of conflation between uh, conscience and the superego. And I was thinking that conscience would counteract the superego, if that makes any sort of sense. No, I mean, certainly, I think that... Um, and I think I mentioned it, but you're right. It's misleading to conflate these two terms. Because when Freud's talking about the superego, he's mostly talking about something much more punitive and severe. Whereas you could think of conscience as the guardian of our better selves. So that, uh, as it were, a, a good conscience, yeah. in a certain sense, might be precisely the part of oneself that holds the things that one values most. What that doesn't get round, though, is the question of whether one values those things most, how one came to value them, and how much their injunctions and how much their so-called choices. Because I think the risk is that you can produce a relatively benign, pastoralised version of conscience, which sounds good, 
and a horrible thing called a superego. Well, I think the risk is that conscience can, in a way, be a cover story for something quite punitive. It doesn't have to be, but it could be. Um, While you were talking, I started to think about um, the economy and the problems at the moment of how, in some ways, we feel quite dominated by people who seem completely bereft of self-criticism, who are the financial sector and the super-rich, and people who don't pay their taxes and don't seem to mind not paying their taxes and seem to sort of live without morality or super-ego or law. Uh, And we seem to want to, you know, for them to at least feel bad when they go to bed at night if not actually end up in prison and they don't seem to and this seems to be a a major theme of our current uh, economy and politics and culture right now is there anything you'd say about that is it is that just a misrepresentation of no in terms of how this relates to to problems of of sort of pathological or seemingly pathological people who have become a kind of preoccupation for uh, us in our economy and our politics I don't know where you are, but I agree with you. Um, obviously, if, you, if somebody claims to be against self-criticism, you'd have to wonder what they're for. Well, I'm not against self-criticism, but like everybody else, I'm against the wrong kind of self-criticism. So clearly, there are people that I think should be infinitely more critical of themselves. But my assumption here is, within the terms of the story, that... Um, one of the worst defences against the terror of one superego is to have no superego, is to, to all intents and purposes, dissociate it. So I can commit all sorts of crimes during the day and sleep perfectly well, but I've got a, somewhere in my world there are going to be people I loathe and despise and feel intimidated by. Now, it could be the pathetic, weak, law-abiding people who think I shouldn't be doing what I'm doing. But I don't think there's a real way out of this. I just think that um, people should be um, educated in school to have certain kinds of conversations in which they might be able to clarify what they care about most. Because somebody who apparently lives guilt-free is living in a very, very dangerous delusion, it seems to me. More than that, I can't say. I'm here. Oh. <laughs> um, I was just thinking about when you were talking about over-interpretation and under-interpretation and what it would be like if an interpretation was perfect. And I was sort of seeing it as a, like, this is under-interpretation and then this is perf- perfect interpretation, which is kind of, like, awful, because it's nothing. And if you over-interpret, then it enables this one to kind of come back and have some kind of relationship with this one. And I was wondering if that related to the superego and the ego. And if the ego is strong enough, then the superego could be bossy and then the ego could kind of... I was sort of just wondering about that. Well, I think perfection is a superego term. And I think that it would be misleading to think there could be a perfect interpretation because the question would be perfect from whose point of view? You know, what, what are the criteria? I think what Freud is saying is that the risk is under-interpretation, which perfect interpretation would be one fantasy. In other words, once I've made my perfect interpretation, interpretation has stopped. What Freud is saying at his best is, when interpretation stops, that's when the trouble starts. And that's what he means by over-interpretation, I think. What, what was your phrase when you were talking about whatever was in the middle from under and over? You had a phrase... I, think, I can't remember, but I think it was something about um, what... What does this tell us about our criteria for sufficient interpretation? Sufficient. 
Thanks for a really um, stimulating and fascinating talk. Um, it made me wonder about, I think, kind of having a repertoire or variety of, of behaviours or um, choices, at least. And therefore, of course, a repertoire of things that might be therapeutic is also probably desirable to some people, or me at least. But I just wondered to what extent you think that the current maybe predominance of uh, the NHS-funded CBT short brief interventions are perhaps a foreclosing of such a repertoire and are perhaps imposing um, a, you might call, omniscient kind of predetermined rationality on us. I mean, of course, a variety is important and it could be very beneficial for some people, but do you think there's a over-dominance of that type of approach? Well, I think at least people who want quick fixes acknowledge that we haven't got much time. And so I think people should try the therapies they're intrigued by. Obviously, I prefer psychoanalysis, and that's why I do it. But I think it would be silly to start saying that psychoanalysis is better than X, or it's a different thing. Um, I think it's a shame, and again, it would be like part of what <clears throat> I think I'm talking about. If there was a kind of uh, spurious cultural consensus about therapy... I mean, if anything worked, we'd all be doing it. There's not a mystery, this. Um, so, in this culture, there's an array of possible things you might do. If you have a broken leg, there's probably more or less universal consensus of what you should do. If you have a broken heart, there isn't. So, we are, we are left with what's available in the culture, and it's partly contingent. What you know about, who you know, what education you had, your class, etc. Um, CBT sounds to me very uninteresting. But for some people, it's really good. So it's as good as it is for those people for whom it's good. Um, thank you very much for a very stimulating lecture. It's, it seems to me that one of the things I've been pondering is to what degree the superego is written into the psychoanalytic project in the sense that um, it pathologizes the individual from the very start. The individual is sick, therefore wanting, failing, and needs healing by the uh, Grand Master. Um, and I wonder if you, you know, I've been very interested in psychosynthesis, Robert, Roberto Assagioli's work, where he takes the notion of a troop of actors into the individual, and the critic can then speak. A dialogue can happen, an internal dialogue. I wondered if you'd just speak to this flaw within the heart of psychoanalysis and perhaps other possibilities. Well, <clears throat> I think that... It's hard to know which way around this is, isn't it? Because on the one hand, you could think psychoanalysis has created the very object it's then going to treat. And that must be partly true. Um, I think that any psychoanalysis, any kind of therapy that pathologizes is potentially part of a problem. Now, it's very comforting to feel that somebody actually knows what's wrong with you and can tell you. And that once they know what's wrong with you, they can then work out what you're going to do. I think psychoanalysis, in a way, needs to have it both ways of this. I think it needs to be genuinely pragmatic in that sense. That is to say, not it needs to find out why something is a problem for somebody in the first instance. Not um, start from the principle that, according to some normative developmental cycle, we know what it is for things to go wrong in a life. So in the psychoanalysis that I would value, it would start from somebody's own account and sense of what they think is wrong with them what they think they're suffering from. 
if I was then to say, oh, well, you've got obsessional compulsive disorder, it seems we, we would then have a big problem on our hands. But if the conversation can be elaborated in a way that um, there isn't the kind of authority suggested by pathologization, but there is somebody who knows something about something, in other words, they have the experience of having done versions of this sometime, then I think you're onto the possibilities of a conversation you might value. But I think it's entirely, it's entirely to do with whether this is a conversation you feel is worth having. Just that. And hopefully within that conversation, the, the world of injunctions can be um, tenderised, can be loosened. I've got a question about the fascinating topic we started with of uh, morality without prohibition, morality based on desire. And it struck me that utilitarianism is meant to be that project. You start off with positive desires and then you do some calculations and you come out with some results. And that's why a lot of people think it's not, it's not a real morality. It's a political theory. And Bentham was proud of that fact. He wanted to get rid of morality. So um, if it leads into rational choice theory and it leads into all sorts of scientific pathways, apart from the other kinds of criticisms that have been made of utilitarianism, do you think the utilitarian way is the right way to start on a project of a morality or a non-morality based on desire? I think you know I don't. Um, I think uh, I think it is useful and illuminating for people to be able to find out or to have conversations in which they can um, discuss what they take to be um, the things that matter most to them and either what makes them happy or happier or where their enjoyment is and the imagined consequences of this. What I think it would be unwise to do would be on the basis of that to legislate, to say, I know what will produce the greatest happiness, the greatest number, or that I'm going to assume that we're sufficiently similar such that we'll all want to do this, or we'll all value this particular ideal. So I think that, I think that, that it's as though um, psychoanalysis might prepare you, so to speak, to go back into the world and see if you can make the kind of consensus you want. So it would be like a preliminary to something. But it wouldn't be something you come out of um, knowing what's best for other people. I mean, it's like the thing Wilde says in, in um, The Soul of Man and Socialism, which is that selfishness is knowing what other people should want. Selfishness is, me, is needing everyone to agree with me. But that's agreeing with Bentham. And if you had a, as anywhere, a cloud-sourcing mechanism for generating all these new guides for action, how about that? I don't like the sound of it, do you? <laughs> I, I just wonder if there's a danger of complicating all this. I mean, if one cannot afford either the time or the money to go through the process of psychoanalysis, not that I want to do you out of business, but if one can't afford that process, isn't it possible to develop a degree of self-awareness where basically the bully is seen off, that the conscience is befriended, and that the whole process of orders and severe intimidation become more like 
Mike, the conversation you suggested we should have and the, the kind of suggestions. I mean, I'm, I'm just quoting one thing to give a more concrete example, I suppose, is, is the 12-step fellowship, the 12 steps, where people take their own inventory. You know, it's suggestions, it's not orders. They, they monitor themselves, they, you know, just so they don't completely off the tracks. Isn't that possible to be done on one's own? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, w- I wouldn't want you for one moment to think I'm suggesting that psychoanalysis here is the answer. I just think it's one way and one language for discussing these issues. I mean, in a way, I would hope that people would develop other ways of doing it. I mean, the money problem is really a big deal here because insofar as people are curious about it, of course, they depend upon people charging them very little if they don't have any money. Well, if they don't do that, they shouldn't be doing it. It should be entirely means-related. Because once the psychotherapy and the health service is destroyed, which it is being, then everything is going to depend upon analysts not loving money more than their patients. And who knows whether that's possible. But I certainly think it would be much better if psychoanalysis gave people the tools to do something that wasn't psychoanalysis, that it could be moved on from, or the good bits of it could be used in different kind of social groups. And so then it would cease to be, in any sense, a stronghold of some supposedly enlightened wisdom. The conversation would go on. I, I understood you saying towards the end of your talk that the, one of the reasons why we, th- we have to think of, of ourselves as ob- an object is in order to be loved or in order to be, because of this dependence we have. I, I wonder whether this goes counter to another idea. We need to think of ourselves as an object for fear of non-existence, for fear of the self being only a a construct. Um, I mean, Nietzsche famously said, the self is a neurosis. And and maybe are are these two ideas incompatible, I wonder? I agree with that. I mean, I think that um, the point may be that one feels safe enough to be able to to be an object and a subject, that you can allow yourself to be used as an object consentingly um, and and in entrusting yourself to somebody else as an object, uh, it be guaranteed that you won't be harmed in a way you don't want to be. But I think the problem is when one or somebody gets stuck in object status, either out of fear of loss of love if they don't, or out of fear of their own complexity. I think maybe sometime we should stop. How long, how long does this event go on for? Does anybody know? Are there any authorities here who can tell us? Thanks for listening. For more, go to lrb.co.uk.